So this uh, is the third uh, and final sermon in a little mini-sermon series that we're doing covering our church's three core values. We normally preach through whole books of the Bible, uh, and we've been working through 1 Corinthians, but we've taken a pause here and um, are just revisiting those core values that make Roots, Roots Church. That first uh, value being gospel-centered, which we touched on several weeks ago, and then intentional community, the second value, and now this week we are touching on missional living. And when we hear that two-worded value, it's easy to think of missionaries like the Harringtons or the Vons that we here at Roots are privileged to um, partner with and support. It's easy to think, well, I'm glad that God has raised up folks like them to go and be missionaries in cross-cultural settings. And in doing that and thinking that, we miss the role that each one and every one of us has to play uh, in the unfolding mission of God. The value isn't missionary living, it's missional living, where the focus is on everyone, all of us who are alive in Christ, living with a sense of mission and purpose beyond just a status quo business as usual life as just good Christians. There's more to it than that. This hunger for mission and purpose isn't just a Christian thing. I think it's an image of God thing that's in every single one of us as those who've been created by God. I work at an organization that is a not-for-profit, and so we have a mission of helping uh, families who are homeless to get back on their feet. And it used to be thought that a for-profit company, that their only mission was to sell their widget or sell their service, make a profit, and there, their, their mission is fulfilled. But that's changed in recent decades. Uh, an example of that, I think, is, is Ben & Jerry's ice cream. That is an example that comes to mind for me. They started in the late 70s just with the goal of making ice cream that tasted good. And, and so they opened up an ice cream parlor. But within about seven years of, of opening, in the mid-80s, they created a foundation because they wanted to do more than just make ice cream. They wanted to use the profits of their business to achieve the good that they uh, saw lacking in the world. Tom's Shoes is another more recent example. Um, I thought that with their company and their mission uh, that they just had a mission of, hey, when you buy a pair of shoes, we'll also donate a pair of shoes to someone that needs them. I just wanted to double check, do my research, went to the website to, to see if that was still true. And I was mistaken, actually. It's expanded. So now they, s they uh, say on their website that when you uh, support their company, when you buy their shoes, that it says, when you buy Tom's, you help fund access to mental health resources for the millions of people who need them. So examples like this abound. The point just merely being that we're created for mission and for purpose, for more than just a status quo business as usual life. There's a hunger and a niche in all of us, even those who don't follow Jesus, to see our lives count for more here on this earth. And we believe that here at Roots, um, that we are called to that. So we have as our core value that we are characterized by our missional living. On our website, we unpack that further this way, and I'll read what we have on our website. God saves people, in part so that they can then proclaim his gospel and his glory to others. Our primary mission field as a church is the Sandwood Camino 
community. Our aim is to engage this community with the sacrificial love of Jesus and the saving truth of the gospel. As Jesus took initiative to leave the comforts of heaven to come to earth and give himself for us, we want to go out into our community rather than wait for it to come to us. Every human being, as image bearers of God, has been created for a mission and purpose. And that is so much truer for us as those who have not only been created by God, but also redeemed by Jesus. In fact, we haven't just been created to live on mission, we've been commissioned for it. So we're going to be using as our text for today the Great Commission found in Matthew uh, 28. If you'll turn there with me, it's a lot of text, uh, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. Um, so buckle up and uh, bear with me and enjoying Matthew 28. And I'll be emphasizing uh, different aspects uh, of this passage where we see the words come and see and go and tell. So Matthew 28, the whole chapter. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the mother and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, and they took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. And go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain into which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I've divided the remainder of our time together into four sections. Come and see, go and tell, some application and some objections. Come and see that first section. Before we are launched into mission, we have to know what we're on mission for. More specifically, who we're on mission for. The whole purpose of missional living is to introduce others to the most beautiful, captivating person we've ever met, Jesus of Nazareth. 
One Christian leader has put it quite succinctly, saying that missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Which is to say that until everyone knows, worships, enjoys Jesus as their Savior and Lord, or until Christ returns, we have a mission to help make him known and treasured by all. But to make him known, we have to know his worth, his majesty, his tenderness, his ferocity for ourselves. We're all exper- we've all experienced uh, horrible salespeople who don't really believe what it is that they're selling. They're just merely doing a job, collecting a paycheck. And we know the difference between a teacher who is just regurgitating the syllabus and the content versus a teacher who has immersed herself in the primary source material or who has um, done the hands-on experiments and has seen those textbook theories put into practice. We know the contrast there. That's one of my favorite parts of our two-minute testimonials here at Roots is how we, as the body, get to see a brother or a sister share about how they have experienced Christ and his power and his goodness for themselves. We get to observe and witness and taste and see how good he is. And then just to respond in worship for God's kindness in that brother or sister giving their testimony. And we can see in our text here today the the primacy of coming and seeing for ourselves, worshiping him for ourselves. Again, in verse 6 and following, read again, The angel saying, he's not here, he's risen. Come and see the place where he lay and then go and tell his disciples. And then skipping down, we read in verse 9, Behold, Jesus met them and said greetings, and they came and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid, go and tell the disciples. Go, Go and tell my brothers. And then in verse 16, of course, uh, the, when the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, they saw him and they worshiped him. The women saw for themselves. They worshiped for themselves. And then they went to tell others. So missional living begins with coming and with seeing and with worshiping Jesus. Part of what we should see when we come before him to worship him is that God himself is missional in nature. He doesn't just send people out to be missional. He himself and the three members of the Godhead are a sending and a going God. It's their very nature. It's their very essence to be that. David Bosch, a South African church leader who lived and died in the 20th century, he wrote... In the new image, in this new image, mission is not primarily an activity of the church. It's an attribute of God. God is a missionary God. It's not the church that has a mission of salvation to fulfill in the world. It's the mission of the Son and the Spirit through the Father that includes the church. Mission is thereby seen as a movement from God into the world. To participate in mission is to participate in in the movement of God's love toward people, since God is a fountain of sending love. In the salvation story broadcast in the scriptures, we see a missional God who is three persons, 
We behold the Father who sends the Son in the first advent or arrival, and then we behold the Father and the Son who send the Spirit after Jesus ascended. And we behold then the Father and the Son and the Spirit sending the church out. Truly missional living isn't a separate thing from worshiping Jesus. It is the natural outflow of it. And indeed, it's another form of worship itself. We share and we celebrate what we think is superior. So there should be a constant oscillation, a, a going back and forth between worshiping and witnessing, and worshiping and witnessing. Our witnessing will naturally weaken as our worshiping wanes. So what about you? What does seeing and worshiping God in your life look like right now? Are you enjoying him for yourself? Or are you just going through the motions and coasting on mountaintop experiences from weeks or months or even years ago? You're here gathered with the church, which is awesome. and It's wonderful. But I know from my own life that it's easy to go through the motions of following Jesus while not feeling any emotions for Jesus. And I would just say, don't settle for that. Yes, there are plenty of seasons where we are called to just walk by faith and not by sight, not by feeling, just trusting, believing, knowing that God is good, even when we don't feel that. But there should also be times and seasons where you Find yourself, like the women in Matthew 28, clutching his nail-scarred feet, remembering and experiencing for yourself how great a sin he's delivered you from, how great a mercy he's lavished upon you, just being enthralled with, moved by, maybe tears going down your cheeks, maybe uh, just deep satisfaction and joy welling up in your heart for who he is and what he's done in your life. If you're never moved in your guts with wonder and worship for God, pray for that. Talk with your pastors about habits of grace that can help foster that. Ask other brothers and sisters what their experience of God is like and what seeing and beholding Jesus in their lives looks like. My charge to you today is, is to not settle for any just mere cognitive assent to who God is, as good as that is but fight for and seek to fully worship him with your whole being and heart. So coming and seeing God in his gospel is essential, but we can't stop there. We are not, as some have described uh, the church, the frozen chosen, particularly those who believe in God's sovereignty and his election of us. We're not the frozen chosen. We don't just keep salvation for ourselves. We gather here on Sundays to come and to see, to be reminded of how good God is so that we can then be scattered throughout into the community, throughout the week, going and telling others of God's goodness. If the gospel is as central and as glorious as we believe it is, which is our church's first value, and if we've experienced the joy and the benefits of being part of a life-giving, intentional community, that second value of ours. And if we believe that God is in his very nature and essence, a, a missional, going, sending God, 
then it is imperative that we are a people who go and tell ourselves. Under the old covenant, God had called and designed the kingdom of Israel to be and function as more of a come and see city on a hill. As one example, uh, Isaiah 60, verses 2 through 4. We read. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kingdoms or kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons uh, shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. So that was the kingdom of Israel. They were a city on a hill that were designed to draw others to uh, this nation as an example of God's beauty, his holiness, his glory embodied and personified. But that was the old covenant, and Jesus' new covenant and great commission and the birthing of the church turned all of that on its head. Before his ascension into heaven, recorded in Acts 1, Jesus told his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. It's not enough for us to live lives that are above reproach and full of the fruit of the Spirit, glorious, beautiful, in hopes that our kids or our neighbors, our coworkers, and anyone else in the world will be curious about our conduct and ask us about the apparent hope that we have. What, what makes you different? That's good. That certainly happens. Peter tells us to be prepared for that. But we are also called to seek out those opportunities, not just wait for them to come to us. We're called to go and tell, to be missional, to make disciples. We can't hide and hoard Jesus for ourselves with no concern for those around us who don't yet have salvation in Christ. There are additional reasons from our text today for why we ought to live life on mission with a view of expanding his kingdom by making disciples. The first is, and there's just no sugar coating this or, or softening it, because Jesus commands it. In verse 18 there, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Bluntly put, it's an act of obedience. We can't pretend that Jesus is our Lord and King and then turn a deaf ear to his commands. He commands it. So whatever our objections are to living on mission, whether we feel like we don't have the time or it's scary or whatever those are, our king commands it. It's hard to hear. It's always hard to hear or, or to share. Do it because he commands it, because we are in our culture, such a, a culture that doesn't like authority, um, and obedience is even a hard pill to swallow, uh, but it's there. And the second reason we need to be going and sharing the true gospel with our lives is because myriad other, just dozens and dozens of other false gospels and stories abound. None of us live in a, uh, a neutral vacuum. As Hans preached last week, we are involved in a battle. It's not between flesh and blood. It's between principalities and powers. In verse 12, 
I initially left that part out uh, of what I was going to read, but in verse 12, where the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders are conferring together, we read that when the chief priests had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money and they, to the soldiers, and they said, tell people, this is your story. This is the message you're to proclaim and to herald. That his disciples came by night and they stole him away while we were asleep, which is interesting. How would they know that the disciples came if they were asleep? But anyway, lies and false gospels about Jesus and the purpose of life, why we're here, who we are as creatures, as created ones, lies abound. There are so many stories out there that are getting told. Lies about Jesus that he's one of many ways to eternal life. He wasn't truly God. He's just a really good moral teacher and example. So yeah, I mean, just glean some stuff from him, but like, don't need to obey him. Don't go, don't be extreme. Don't be religious. So we're called because other stories are getting told and broadcast, we are called to make sure that people have the chance to hear the truth, that Jesus is alive, that his kingdom has come. A third reason we need to be going and sharing the true gospel with our lives is because we're not alone. He always goes before us by his spirit and by his people. Even though it can feel like it's just all on us, I've got to have the right words, choose the right time, the right person at the right place. This is all up to me. Even though it can feel that way, God is the one who goes before us. We're not the first ones on the scene. And he's not looking for perfection either, but rather just for faithfulness to open our mouths when the opportunity presents itself or when we pursue that opportunity. In verse 20, he tells us, Behold, I am with you, wherever you are. Not absent. You're not on your own. He's with us to the end of the age. He says, When you're witnessing for me, I've gone before you. I'm beside you. I am in this situation. I'm in that person's life that you're pursuing. You're not alone in this. Expanding on that, we hear Jesus tell his disciples in John 4, 35 through 38, Jesus tells them, Look, disciples, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you didn't labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You and I have no idea what other people or conditions that God has been working in the life of your friend or your at your school or at your coworker or your neighbor, preparing them for this very moment that you are about to offer to pray for them in their moment of grief, or when you're about to give a small testimony to something that God has done in your life, giving glory to him, we have no way of knowing that this is, in fact, the perfect time for what we're about to say or do or point someone, how we're about to point them to Jesus. And nor do we need to know that. We just need to be faithful and make the most of those opportunities. So we come and see and worship 
in order to go and tell and make disciples. But practically speaking, what does that even look like? Should we all get on a plane for Africa or Iran next month? No, don't be silly. Not next month. But why not next year? Yes, that does seem extreme, but I agree with other leaders in the church that rather than thinking it takes a special calling for us to go and live in a cross-cultural setting and be a missionary in that way, that perhaps God, the God of glory and his kingdom, should flip that on its head. What if instead, what would like life look like if instead we thought it actually takes a special uh, calling from God to, to remain here in the States and work for a bank or whatever? The fact is that we have a lot of room to grow in having a passion for and a commitment to seeing disciples made in and of all nations. One way to increase some of that commitment for foreign missions, I think, is to learn to live more on mission here in what you're already doing in the everyday stuff of life. Often life is very busy and there isn't a lot of margin or bandwidth to add more to the calendar. So making the most of what is already in front of us is a great place to start. Start with where you are, with the relationships you already have with friends at school, with your coworkers, with those in your apartment complex or your neighborhood, on your sports teams. Just lean in, learn to listen and learn what's going on in other people's lives. Earnestly get to know the people that you're already bumping into. And I have to confess that I am horrible at this in what is a perfectly golden opportunity. When I take uh, kids to evening basketball practice, after a long day at work, I am inclined to pass the time just listening to a podcast or reading an article. And it is a huge missed opportunity because we clearly have a very significant common thing going on in life. Our kids like playing basketball, so that would be a great springboard to start a conversation from. But I'm often too selfish with my time and my energy to go out of my way to strike up that conversation and see where it might lead, what doors might God might open through it. And so me sharing that with you here this morning is me committing to engage and being more missional that way to engage a dad maybe at the next practice and see where that conversation might go. So I welcome you to ask me, how you doing at that, Nate? Have you actually put yourself out there that way? If you do have a little extra time in your life, another way to be on mission maybe would be just a, something you'd already enjoy, but join a hobby group like hiking or ultimate frisbee or quilting or Derek's not here, but even birding, if that's something you're passionate about. To use your enjoyment of that certain Activity as a means of building relationships with others. I know it can be, gathering with the church is a great place to meet people, but especially if you're uh, adulting, it's tougher to just find places to just start relationships. And so uh, just finding something you're already enjoying or passionate about and using that as a springboard to build relationships with others, I think can be a great thing. We can make the most of illness too. My mom was in the ER uh, in hospital recently in the last couple of weeks, and when I went on the second day to visit her and to pick her up, uh, I 
I mean, the hospital, let's be honest, right? It's not a great place to, like, hang out. Even if you're reading books and watching TV, it just, it is, it's just not a great place. You don't, you'd rather be doing those things elsewhere. And so I went uh, to pick her up and expected after, you know, 30 hours of being there or so that she'd be just kind of low on energy and like, get me out of here. Um, and I was hugely surprised and blown away to find exactly the opposite. She had had an amazing day uh, of meeting all sorts of brothers and sisters in Christ from all sorts of different parts of the world, too, from South Sudan and um, from uh, Asia, but people who were now here in America working in the hospital. She is not typically a very outgoing person, but I think she just felt moved and compelled to, to be more on mission. And so, um, as an example, uh, one nurse, gentleman, uh, specialist came in uh, to do an echocardiogram with her. And she, as he's checking out her heart, she says, do you see Jesus in there? <laughs> Corny, sure. But the response she got was, yes, I do. Jesus is Lord. I couldn't live this life without him. And that was just one of many conversations that putting herself out there, she was able to encourage staff. And let me tell you, staff encouraged her. In fact, when they came to pick her up, She's like, oh, Nate, you can't go yet. You got to meet Carlina. She's amazing. She's wonderful. And just another sister in Christ uh, who was a nurse. And they'd just been talking about how good the Lord was. So even using our sickness and our illness, uh, especially because a lot of people in our lives are inclined to ask us, how's that going? I heard you're sick. And they invite themselves into our lives so we can then use that as an opportunity to share about hope in Christ. We also live missionally when we simply show concern or compassion for others beyond uh, just the immediate moment. So when a neighbor or a friend at school mentions that they or a loved one was, for example, in the hospital or going through something hard, of course, offer to pray with and for them right there, but go a step further and like take note of that. Pray for them a day or two later as well. And then I think as I've found in my life, as I and thinking of that person throughout the week, then when I come across their paths again, I can show the love of Christ. We can show the love of Christ by saying, hey, you mentioned four days ago, four weeks ago, this thing. I've been thinking about you. I've been praying about you. How is that? How are they? Have they recovered? That kind of care and compassion is noticed because it's not common, and it goes a long way toward opening doors. And then finally, I would just mention breaking bread together is another huge way to be intentional about discipleship and living on mission. Inviting someone out to coffee or lunch or having them over to your home for a meal is a way to take something as common and routine as filling our bodies with fuel and to transform it into something sacred and meaningful. Helping others feel and experience that God sees them and cares about them. It was kind of cool. Recently, I was talking with uh, someone I know through work. He's, he's a donor, and we were just having a conversation. And long story short, discovered that he knew my best friend's dad, uh, who had passed away in 2009 from cancer, but was a Seattle police officer and would often do his devotionals uh, at Starbucks as a way to just see who he might bump into and be able to share the gospel with. And um, it was fun to discover this person through work, knew this friend who died 13, 12, 13 years ago, 
but to hear that his experience of Dale as being missional um, had stuck with him all these years later because he would say that, oh yeah, that Dale would go to the coffee shop and he called it St. Arbucks um, <laughs> because he, that was his view was I'm, I'm going here on mission. I'm going to connect with people. I'm going to see who I might be able to share a conversation with. And that was, yeah, so encouraging. I told my friend whose dad passed away, like, you wouldn't believe it, brother. Like, this guy knew your dad this way, and, and it, was, it was awesome. But so encouraging to hear um, this police officer who had a very difficult job, um, how he approached even just something as simple and common as uh, grabbing a cup of coffee. Objections. What keeps us from missional living? We see in the scriptures this rhythm and this oscillation again between coming and seeing and worshiping and going and telling and making disciples. So what holds us back from doing this more? Sometimes we have too low a view of ourselves and of the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us. We think, I'm just, uh, you know, fill in the blank. I'm just a freshman. I'm just a new hire. I'm just a new Christian. I'm just a... Those thoughts and feelings are totally natural and they're totally rubbish. You're not just a... One of the things I love about the New Testament is how it highly positions and praises women. I love that because it's not at all what you would expect if as many people believe, telling their stories and lies, that this is just a made-up book uh, by a bunch of men. Um, you wouldn't, if you were making this up in that era and age, you wouldn't position women in such a positive light, especially often contrasted with uh, men who were fumbling or bumbling. And so, because the status of, of women in that culture just was very much less than uh, what that was of men. Their, their testimony wasn't even admissible in court. And yet countless times throughout the scriptures, we see women in a favorable light, even over and above men. It was the women who were the first to the tomb, and it was the women who were the ones with stout faith to believe he is alive, whereas the disciples, the men, uh, eh, you're just you're kind of crazy, you're kind of kooky. In John 4, it was the woman at the well who led her townspeople, a, a woman who had a checkered past. It was her, this woman who led the townspeople um, in great numbers to put their hope in Christ. These females didn't just say, ah, I'm just a woman. No one will believe me. Uh, neither should we. We are more than just who we think we are. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6 writes this. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are uh, sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient 
to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Your sufficiency and my sufficiency for witnessing and being on mission, it doesn't come from ourselves. It comes through Jesus' Spirit who has and is writing his story of glory, the glory of his salvation on your heart so that it can be known and read by all. So don't believe the lie for a moment that you are just uh, whatever. You are so much more than that through the sufficiency that God gives. On the one hand, we can think, I just don't have enough fill in the blank. And on the other hand, we can often feel, I have too much remaining sin, imperfection. I'm not sanctified enough yet for God to use me. Again, that is understandable to think that way, but it's also untrue. Yes, as followers of Christ, we pursue holiness and sanctification. We don't make friends with sin. We wage war against it. But the fact remains that none of us are perfect. All of us in Christ still have indwelling sin. Yes, we want to be holy as Christ is holy, but what the world needs to see isn't necessarily more perfect people on pedestals, but more people pursuing repentance and reconciliation with humility and transparency. In a world that's continually hiding and covering over sin and shortcomings, it is such a refreshing contrast to witness someone own their failure, seek to make amends, all while hoping in Jesus. Paul says it this way in a passage some of us guys have been working on memorizing, and I'm tempted to do it from memory, but I don't know. <laughs> this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That he might display, display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe. How's that? Repentance and confession as a form of evangelism. So don't see your continued need for a savior even today, as an impediment to being on mission, but actually see it as one of God's primary vehicles through which he is displaying his glory to those around you. One of my favorite bands is Switchfoot, and they have a song titled Where the Light Shines Through, and some of those lyrics uh, for that song go like this. When you're feeling like an astronaut, stuck on a planet, even time forgot, and you're a version of yourself, but you're not the same. You try to keep the wound camouflaged. And the stitches heal, but the years are lost, and another bottle on the shelf can't numb the pain. Why are you running from yourself now? You can't run away, because your scars shine like dark stars. Yeah, your wounds are where the light shines through. So let's go there, to that place where we sing these broken prayers where the light shines through. The wound is where the light shines through. Your imperfections, your shortcomings, your sin, humbly confessed, vulnerably displayed, that's where your Christ's light shines through. So don't let your lack of perfect perfection hold you back.
In closing, I want to bring us back to the beginning. We are called and commissioned to be a people on mission, making disciples in the everyday stuff of life. Because God is a missional God, it is who he is. So as you come to the communion table in a moment, which truly is the pinnacle, the height of our gathering and worship this morning, see and celebrate the Father who sent his Son, and see the Son who lived the life we failed to live, died the death we deserved, and has risen victorious over sin, death, and Satan. And now, who sends us, his church, in the power of his spirit to bear witness with our lives to the good news of his gospel. I'll close with another song lyric, this one from a song called Mission's Flame uh, by Matt Redman. Let worship be the fuel for mission's flame. We're going with a passion for your name. We're going for we care about your praise. Send us out. Let worship be the heart of mission's aim. To see the nations recognize your fame till every tribe and tongue voices your praise. Send us out. Let's pray.